This is the Let's Grab Coffee podcast, and I'm your host, George Khalifa. I'm curious, like, what was your mindset? What, you know, why make the move now from New York? Uh, I, I think two reasons. First, of course, is um, the, uh, the biggest benefit that you get in New York City is the networking opportunity, right? And right. with all the COVID, that kind of starts to die down, right? Um, the second is, of course, because of the winter, you always want to avoid the winters, like all the snow, like the New York City snow. So it was also like a trigger point. And the third is, um, it was quite interesting that uh, the, the city of Miami, the mayor's office, they're actually very, very warm. Uh, we have, I have a meeting set with him uh, very soon. Like they're always inviting uh, more and more startups to like figure out if how, um, how they can like also work with government in, in, in some settings. So I think there's this new warmer environment that's getting created. I met a couple of very big uh, mega funds here, a couple of investors here, potential contracts here. So, so yeah, it's like uh, you kind of get this first mover's advantage when you move to Miami right now. Um, right. So yeah, I, I would say that's pretty much it. But but weather is, of course, like the biggest, biggest factor in all of this. Yeah, well, it's funny too. Like the, I guess a lot of startups are, are realizing now, obviously more remote, virtual, you know, and especially if you're a startup, why stay in a very high rent, high tax, high cost yep. environment where yep. you can move anywhere, right? And, yep, and absolutely. Outperform, right? Mm-hmm. And like your output yeah. doesn't go down just because you're in Miami, uh, assuming, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, so, so it's so interesting because like COVID happened right after we raised our series A round. Right. Uh, and we had like big plans to like hire and expand our office in New York City and so on. Um, yeah, like we had to make changes, some like, very, very fundamental changes in our 2020 strategy overall. And uh, yeah, like it's all remote now, like we don't care whether you are here, you are in South America, you are anywhere in the world. Uh, so as a lot of that has also changed, uh, I would say in the last seven, six, seven months, uh, as well as of course, like all the rent factors and everything. Um, and uh, yeah, so, so th- th- those are the things. And, you know, as, as a co-founder, we're gonna get into obviously and what you do a little bit more, but kind of setting the stage as a co-founder, as a as a CTO, you know, you've been a, a technical co-founder for for quite some time in your in your experience. Uh, you have a mm-hmm. pretty cool past, so I'm I'm curious from that leadership side, but also from the technical hat that you wear. Mm-hmm. What what did you tell your team as soon as January 1, 2021 hit? What did you get mm-hmm. on Zoom? Tell your team in terms of just the mindset. I see a you know a board of Steve Steve Jobs behind you for those. <laughs> Um, uh, I'll, I'll read it out really quick. The, the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who often do. So curious, is that kind of the mindset that, that you're telling your team? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think as uh, we have entered 2021, um, I mean, so far we we always had other companies to look up to and say, okay, like that's the, these guys are doing something better than us, and like let's try to figure it out and let's try to do something, something novel, something unique, something better, something faster, make it cheaper, right? And I think those are the three fundamental parameters on which the technical team, by the way, operates. So we, we, we always say we want to be faster, better, and cheaper, not one of the three, right? We have to be all three all the time. But uh, with the, I mean, you, you, have, you have probably seen all, all the updates that, that we have we have done last couple of months. Uh, there we. All of these things were in the making for last five years or so. I mean, we had planned uh, how, what the future of the product is going to be, where the data science community is going to be focusing on. And now we are kind of venturing in, in 
in a very very deep space and like it's a very very open playground for us there are not too many companies where whom we can like look up to and say oh that's our next milestone and let's hit that and let's get that feature built uh, it's almost like okay now you guys are pioneers you are going to set the new new rules of the game um, and that's where you have to believe in lots of things that you are going to do and of course we are going to do lots of um, we are going to make a couple of mistakes as well like in this journey but i think that setting that mindset that it's fine to make mistakes right it's fine to uh, embrace certain certain kind of losses on you burnt 40000 on gpus it's, it's okay right you're trying some to build something that's going to be helpful so i think that's the one of the main things that we are trying to set in the team from a mindset perspective that now you are you are going to be the flag bearers you are going to be the companies that people will look up to you are going to be the thought leadership when it comes to no code ai and um, yeah most of the times you will be called crazy but it's fine because you are going to change the world exactly so. i i love that mindset and and it, it's it's stuff too right because it's back to your point around you know the three buckets that you that you focus on um oftentimes it's kind of tough to wrestle all three because that's what you're trying to do and i know from from my days you know with a startup it was a, as a fintech startup that i was a part of that was always the, the tough part and we were because i was on the business development side so we're we're kind of caught in the middle right we're trying to story tell the vision but when you're early i'm sure you guys went through this as well and maybe still 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 are but you're always storytelling what it could be and then you have mm-hmm. a technical team like basically racing on a treadmill trying to make yep. the customer's vision happy uh, mm-hmm. and it, it's, it's it's tough right because you kind of know what the sandbox is but you also mm-hmm. as a cto are operating outside of that but you have to be yeah. reasonable. Like you have to take it in iterations. How do you how do you wrestle with that, right? How do you wrestle with mm-hmm. being in product level one, but at the same time envisioning what it could do without uh, skipping a couple of steps? Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, so I think one thing like being a um, being like one of the first time or or, or few times entrepreneur, um, something that we learned very early on. Again, like Wall Street is not. Uh, the bed of roses for startups right it's it's the place with the highest barrier to entry right if and if you cross it you will find like bunch of your peers starting stopping right they will become the sweetheart of the of the space for mm-hmm. for a year they are all everywhere in the media all conferences and then they're gone um so i think the credibility on wall street is survival so if you can survive wall street for five plus years you are you are doing it well <laughs> right so so i think that, yeah that, that then there's something going going okay with the company right i mean until it's 5 years like you you can't really trust them uh so so i think like uh, it we were we were lucky enough to get those kind of early uh like get those observations very early on right and we knew that okay marketing is not going to help us uh, doing bespoke projects is not going to help us uh and so on what you always want want to do especially because wall street is so dynamic uh, things are changing evolving all the time is constant creating this feedback loop of product market fit that pmf that companies talk about and you get it once and now you scale i don't think it really applies so well in wall street it the the dynamics of the of the market keep evolving the context of the market keep evolving so you have to create this framework where you can be as agile as the needs of the market so to to make that happen where you kind of are getting this constant feedback loop uh we actually had to then set up this framework where okay we built something 
let's go and talk to a couple of couple of our trusted advisors and 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 potential contracts and see if is it something that they would buy right and what that actually ends up doing is of course you are always looking you are always focusing on solving that next problem from a customer's standpoint but if you do it for a prolonged period of time you have captured the product market fit for a wide range of use cases as part of a co- cohesive singular product and i think that has helped because then you are not really running too far away from the realities of the product right. uh, because you are always talking to the client and then letting them know what you are doing at the same time you are also from a client's standpoint you are also helping them be aware of all the other things that the machine learning community has to offer right so so i think like we are working very very hard to bridge that gap as much as possible what you read in papers and like this classic ml research and ai research versus what that operational efficiency requirement from business looks like and constantly updating it constantly talking to them getting feedback sending emails internally to the team letting them know uh, we have this spreadsheet of all the co- clients we have lost and a feedback from each one of them and that is shared with all the tech leads so they know what part of the product they didn't like and so on i i really like well a couple of points that i kind of want to reiterate just so people maybe have a mistake is that you answered one of my my questions indirectly i was going to ask how do you go about getting that feedback uh, and, and your answer was like going to either like the board of directors senior management team and a couple of of close users customers that that you are working with just to get that quick sorry quick real time feedback of you know small iterations and figuring out what's working the other point is is maybe in a, in a spreadsheet or whatever where you log your your uh, your features of what's not working of what's working and sharing that with the tech team two very important things how do you how do you stay away though from becoming very consultative in nature like when you're trying to build something that obviously is scalable which you guys at a certain are doing uh and especially something that can be monetized month over month year over year without it being just like a one time consulting fee and this is what one specific specific customer wants as a technical founder how do you stay away from that right yep uh, i i tell you it's hard it's very very hard um <laughs> the the journey of axern kind of i mean we started it in in that kind of a consultative nature like i mean the 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 vision from the start was so oh, let's build a product but very quickly the first client the first user that we got they're like oh we don't need all of the other things we only need the specific specific part of it uh, and and when we were starting it was the best decision to make given all the other variables that okay let's cut down all the other things of the product and only focus on the things that the client needs because you're just starting right you need the first uh, you need to make uh, that uh, you need to enter the market somehow um, but over time i would say we have uh, i think some of it of course so some of it came from from like experience of doing it for some people and then realizing that it's not going to scale right and we have done consultative uh, pieces right we showed the product the customers wanted right, some customizations but like, okay let's do it right it's a it's a six figure check which is a, a good for a couple of months of all of our operational cost yeah um but i think over and and i don't really like i won't say that is early stage startup shouldn't do that because again you at some stage you are still getting some feedback from customers you are building those relationships yeah, and and that that would be that would be gold uh, but yeah like before, right to what you were saying yeah, you, like those early checks are important right mm-hmm. yep exactly right but then over, over a period of time i mean 
some of these mistakes that we made ourselves and learnings, I would call them. And then looking at all the companies that had pivoted from a product to consultative in nature and then failing. I mean, there's so many examples. If you just search right now, how many AI companies within FinTech, there's a recent acquisition. Uh, uh, I, I won't go in the detail, but like you look at them, like none of them really focus on building the product, but then doing those consulting approaches, getting that big check, but it's not going to scale because then you all your eggs are in, in that one basket. So, so, so I would say it's hard. It's, it's very, very difficult to say no. Uh, sometimes if the check size is very big, at the same time, you always have to look at what is your total addressable market, right? What is the, what's the bigger pain point you're trying to solve? And that's the motivation then. Yeah, like instead of getting lost in the weeds, what are we really trying to accomplish? And I think, you know, one, once you get past the first couple of, of years where you're, you're scrapping, basically, I think you have to almost elevate to that mindset. And to your point, I think experience plays a big part. So that was part of your answer. You, one, looked at your experience, but also the, 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 the kind of market that you're operating in. What have other uh, competitors or companies been doing? Um, yep. Talking about, so, so you're mentioning obviously AI, artificial intelligence, which gets a lot of flair, especially now, right? With big data and, and quantum computing. Like these are very hot topics. They have been for quite some time. Uh, mm -hmm. Curious, when you, when you think of AI, and you, especially in, in the sense of, of workflows, right? For enterprises, can you just distill what that means for people listening who might not be as aware and then we'll get to the no-code stuff uh, on top of that. Sure, absolutely. So um, if you talk to uh, financial institutions, right, what, how does a, uh, an AI initiative or a data science initiative really start? And then what's their end objective that they're trying to achieve, right? Um, so to, to connect to that problem, I mean, two, three decades ago, data was, was an edge. Anyone who had access to data, they had an edge over other people. Right. Uh, then came the big data era, which uh, Google with all their like really cool papers around MapReduce and big data technologies and stuff. Um, they basically allowed people now to analyze very large amounts of data and, and made those technologies accessible. So a lot of firms were now able to collect lots of data from various places and analyze them. Uh, then in, I would say in the last decade, we are seeing this growth trajectory of data lakes and, and data warehouses, you have companies like Snowflake, right? So the, the data as an edge is solved, then analyze, you accumulated the data and now analyzing large amounts of data with big data technologies, that was solved. Then comes the third piece, which is, okay, now I have too many of source, too many sources from various places giving me data. And I want to analyze all of them together. Uh, how can, how do you reconcile these different data points, put them in, an, in a centralized repository, in a singular data lakes and stuff. And that's where you see this major emphasis for last seven, eight years around, around data lake and data lake technologies, all the, from open source with Kafka and all these technologies to even commercial products like Snowflake. Um, but then end of the day, what, do, what are firms really trying to do with all this data? It all goes back to, the, to, to, to square one where you really want to make sense of the data. No firm is really collecting the data for the sake of it. Uh, they all want to make better decisions even by analyzing lots of data. So that is where this whole analysis and data science and AI uh, is, 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 starting to make, uh, is starting to make a dent in the enterprise's workflows because the amount of data is just so much that there is no way you can humanly 
analyze or read these all these kind of documents and data points and assess them uh, in, in like a manual fashion. So you need something more systematic, something more automatic, something smarter that can help you make sense of these terabytes of data. Mm-hmm. So for enterprises, what, what does AI in that workflow really mean? Uh, it's really making that workflow like elevating the same workflow that they have been using, right? Single data points coming, coming them, them making sense of it and making decision. Now, when you have a lot of more data points and you can no longer just put human directly in that equation, you need something smarter. So it's literally augmenting that workflow, elevating it to catch up to the amount of data now that they have to consume from various places. And, uh, and yeah, so I think that is where then businesses say, okay, uh, we have been reading company reports and world reports, but now we also want to analyze public news articles uh, alongside because the, the market is moving so quickly that it's not really moving in, in quarterly basis or yearly basis anymore. Right. Uh, so to keep up with that pace, then you say, okay, my innovation team, can you build something, a toolkit that can help me analyze? So I think that's where you see businesses requesting more and more from their internal innovation teams. Can you bring AI to make sense of all this data in a more systematic way. Mm, yeah, especially like um, you know the, the fintech company I was working with, we we obviously were using AI ML for mostly banks and insurers in, in different verticals, right? Like customer onboarding, uh, fraud detection, etc. But what you're saying is exactly what large banks and, and insurers might need, right? So even when you're saying like big data, I can think of very quick case study, right? A bank wanting to understand you know spending habits. Or and maybe to personalize a product offering, right? So if I know that uh, you know Anshul is is a, a high spender, frequent flyer, I'll, I'll you know provide or recommend this kind of credit card that m- more suits your preferences, but also gives you better rewards, etc. You know, and, and for us, keeps you more engaged as a bank versus yep. going to Amex, let's say, right? Yep, yep, absolutely. Is, is that and, yeah? Yes, 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 exactly, right? And then when you think. Uh, so that's where you then think about okay, what are these different workflows, right? So a right. better better research I want to conduct on all the information. I want to make better lending decisions there. I want to analyze these meeting notes that uh, people are collecting in their CRM applications, right? To understand okay, what is my my customer really saying, and and so on. And then as you said, right, like uh, understanding the habits, the spending habits uh, from their forecasting, uh, figuring out who would be the like it's no longer, okay, this is the person I need to give credit card now because that person has a huge balance in the account. But no, forecasting six months into the future and saying, oh, this customer is building up the transactions and spending habits in a way that in six months they would require this much this much credit uh, and so on. So yeah, so absolutely, right? And that's where AI really plays, plays a big role. Right, like, like being uh, more proactive in that sense. You obviously with Acern, you, you take it a, a step further, right? And you're you're providing this no-code development platform. The way I think of it, it might be super naive and simple, uh, but when I first heard of it, right, the first association I made was like, okay, this could be related to something like what Shopify did early on, right? So mm-hmm. if I have no HTML experience, I've never created a website from scratch, I don't want to use, you know, WordPress or whatever. Uh, what's the other one? Wings. Or, you know, and, and I want to yeah. online shop, but I don't have the, the technical capacity to do so. Shopify gives me that answer. Mm-hmm. As far as I can understand, you're trying to do that for the data teams within the banks to make it easier for them to, instead of focusing on all the technical aspects of creating the infrastructure, they focus on the strategy of what it can be used for, which directly impacts cost, PL, et cetera. 
Yeah, exactly. Right. I think if you if you talk to data science teams, uh, I would say less than five to seven percent of their time they actually spend on analysis. Prior to that, it's acquiring the data set, connecting it, putting it, figuring out replicas, storage. What what to do if there is a fault in one data center? Do they, are they doing redundancies? Is it reliable? Because they they really can't even and then data cleaning, pre-processing, and so on and so forth, right? So to even go to the step where you can provide some insights to your business users, uh, it takes months. It takes like almost, I mean, I'm being very bullish to say, oh, it's going to take nine months to analyze 10K filings. It takes even more uh, for most of the banks right now. And that's what we want to optimize with no code workflow. We are like, okay, you don't need to do, if you have a hypothesis that I think, analyzing uh, the coronavirus mentions uh, in 10K filings um, for S&P 500 companies uh, in the US uh, in, in the quarterly reports uh, or, or the annual reports is going to give me some sense of how the company might have, how the company was affected by coronavirus, like the supply chain got affected and so on and so forth. Um, just to test that hypothesis, uh, all you need to do is like click a couple of buttons and within a couple of minutes, you will have all that information analyzed from 10K filings on a dashboard or in an API, whichever way you want through our platform versus engaging your data science team and spending one year and millions of dollars trying to do that, right? So I think that's where the no code really comes into picture where uh, we leave it up to your imagination on what your hypothesis are, but we are saying that we have solved the technical problems to connect all these components that will give you that eventual result that, that you're looking for. Right. So, so the data science teams within those banks and, and even like their, their business units, they work together to you know, create some actionable insight from these reports that you're helping them with instead of spending all that time on the back office stuff to get to that, even to get to that answer. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, and it's all self-service, right? Uh, I mean, we, we try to onboard you in a way and then give you also the ability to customize things because every bank has their own insight. Every analyst has their own insight. Uh, you can, you don't think the sentiment is up to your mental model of what, how positive or negative an article is. You can go in and refine that sentiment model right away. And then like, we give you all those abilities to personalize it. Yeah, very true. Uh, I mean, this is super interesting, right? I think if you, if you think of, 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 like the use case huge right and and what you can do is endless like you're, you're giving one small example with 10 uh, 10 k's and, and sentiment analysis and you know you pick on certain words you can attribute all that stuff that's super cool uh, curious when you're selling to banks because this was one of the challenges we used to have right you would think that for someone listening like oh my god you're selling to let's say xyz bank to name to, to not name any but you're selling to these big banks they have big checks to cut they'll be super quick the life cycle or the sales cycle will be super quick oftentimes it's actually the reverse right? To get on the preferred vendor list and, and to get their trust usually happens in smaller steps. They'll cut a smaller check, they'll test something small and then they'll roll out because they don't want to take the risk of trying something new, especially yeah. with a startup, right? And, and, and have something happen or, or something from a security perspective. So how do you deal with that when explaining it from a technical perspective? Sure, absolutely. So, um, I mean, we all come from majority of the team comes from data science background. I mean, we have been um, on kind of on the other side of the table, um, like working for other firms, doing data science and, and, and so on. And um, so what you said is true, like most of these banks have lots of, lots of money, they have budget, they have been proactive, they have been early enthusiasts for to like ride the AI wave. And what that has led to, and kind of works in, in our favor now is, 
their team has had some experience trying to solve this problem. Mm-hmm. So, and like over two years or three years, I mean, most of our, like some of our biggest clients have been trying to do the things that we are doing for over three years. So what ends up happening is you are not, you no longer have to sell the problem to the, to the end user because they understand the problems. The data science team understands the pain points. Like when we talk about certain technologies, it has been on their wish list. They are like, okay, this would have been the way to go and like the way to implement things for us. Um, so what ends up happening is all that we have to do is convince their internal teams and their data science teams that, okay, the things that you wanted to do, we are offering 90, 95% of it. At the same time, we're not saying, okay, you replace your team and then get us on board. No, that's, that, that's not the, 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 the idea here. The idea is uh, we can, our platform can also import all your existing work and we have worked really hard to make sure that the data science teams don't look at us as a competitor, but as a collaborator, right? right. So all the two years of work that you have done building different models, the system can integrate with those as well. At the same time, we also give you the ability to customize and personalize our models, the ones that we are offering to you, right? So what ends up happening is, the so when we make this case, we really have to just convince the data science team that we are not a competitor. We are helping you just accelerate and give you that offset that you need to do that last 10% of the work that you really need to do. Um, and the sec- so once that, that really gets established and then that gets established, looking at, okay, are you guys really doing, uh, I mean, most of the time it's an E to E and it's an expert to expert communication, right? So the business users also fade away. And then there's someone with a PhD in machine learning talking to someone with a PhD in machine learning on our side. And then they are too discussing, okay, was that the right approach to it? If it's all go, then we have solved the theoretical technical barriers. And then all that it, it, it kind of converges to is, okay, we are going to be cheaper in all aspects we are going to make sure that you are not wasting any resources. You're not acquiring millions of dollars of infrastructure uh, to, to run these hypotheses. And then it becomes more of an economic uh, uh, discussion once we get this nod from the internal data science team. So, so I think that has been the way and like the journey through which we have acquired some of our biggest clients. And it has started to happen more and more now because most of the companies those teams have already invested a year, two years building these kind of things and now ripe enough to look for off the shelf uh, platform. Um, so yeah, so, so it's like that, that has been the journey. It's never a quick sales cycle, regardless of how big the check size is. It's like it takes months. It has taken also years for some clients, but, but it always happens at the end. Nice. Nice. No, that, that, that's a really good way to put it, especially, you know, uh, your last point about you know it'll happen it's just a, it's a different it's a different environment to operate in obviously your experience helps a lot with that uh would love to get in kind of the, the personal side of uh you know growing within the computer science space obviously you have heavy uh, academic background there you have a phd in computer science so i feel like you've you've, caught, you've always been in that world uh, but for those listening who either aren't or would like to get into it just walk us through kind of what that personal journey has been so far to get to uh where you're at now with Assume. Uh-huh, sure. Thanks. Um, so, so, yeah, so I mean, I, I did my undergrad in, in electrical engineering, so I, I didn't really like computer science, to be honest. So I, oh. first I got into information systems. Uh, my family has all been engineers in computer science. Um, and I was like, okay, no, I want to build robots. So that's where I did my undergrad. Uh, 
it helped in a way because I built uh, some expertise in signal processing and, and a lot of those ideas became very, very, like well, were very helpful when I started to do machine learning and AI. So if you're coming from electrical engineering background, I would say you have an edge over computer science people when it comes to understanding how mathematical models work and, and, and so on and so forth. So I did that and then uh, went to Singapore for a couple of years, built robots, uh, like some interesting robots that were, that were published here and there. Um, and uh, then learned that the world of smart tools, smart robots, everything converges on building smarter algorithms. Like if you have built smart uh, modules or what do you call like machine learning modules and machine learning models and AI models, you can pretty much do everything. Like you, you can essentially like even revolutionize the robotics as a field. So that's where my interest kind of started to align towards, okay, let's do data science, let's do AI, let's build upon my expert, on, on my interest on, on, on mathematics and statistical uh, reasoning. Uh, and then for that, I was looking for what are the great places to do applied mathematics. Uh, and NYU has a current uh, school, which is really good. But then I got into the NYU's engineering school uh, and I thought that, okay, that would be a good way for me to venture into AI and, and start to do uh, some of, like refine some of my skills. So that's, that's literally what happened. I mean, I was, I didn't want to do a computer science, but then to do AI, I had to do computer science as a, as a prerequisite. Um, and then in the first year of my PhD itself, I would say like within three months, I met Kumesh, my co-founder right. and uh, at, at a startup event. And, um, and yeah, I think like it was just that our interest, it was like a very, very natural synergy there that uh, what he was doing um, in, in, as an equity researcher, equity research analyst um, at City, I was trying to do something similar for a different use case altogether, like analyzing lots of text and so on. And I think the, the good thing about coming from a PhD background uh, is First is that, I mean, you get trained to work long hours. Like, I mean, PhD, the life starts after 7 p.m. and goes on till 4 or 5 a.m. It sounds really um, fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, I mean, it, it is fun. Like, you, like your lab becomes your family. Like you, you are just there, you are working. Uh, you are always okay with, uh, with ideas not working out because most of your papers are going to be rejected. You're open to public criticism. Uh, about your ideas and also open to course corrections. And I think those were very helpful, at least from a technical standpoint, because we, we did projects that we thought are going to be the face of the company. And then we, we, we killed them because it's like, no, that's not the way to go. And so we, uh, you kind of dissociate yourself from like emotionally from doing technical pieces. I think, yeah, so I think that that's always helpful. And uh, that's one of the traits also we look at when we try to hire technical people. Like, are you like very, very emotional about some of the projects that you have done? Because uh, sooner or later, someone is going to do something better. And then you will not be open to accepting that someone else has done something better than you. So, so I think like that has been, that, that's the angle. If someone's coming from a PhD, I would say that's the key takeaway uh, mm -hmm. for you. And of course, finance is the place where you will get properly grilled and your, tech, your technical expertise will get tested to the very last statement that you make. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so it's going to be fun and, and, and always learning. When, when, you, when you first met um, 
at, at this kind of startup event or the trade show. And, and, you know, you probably started talking about the idea, started working mm -hmm. together. What, what culture did, did you have then that stayed true today that, that you're trying to continue to, to build on with, with this learn? Mm -hmm. So uh, we, in our New York office, right, where we are not going for some time due to COVID. Yeah. Um, so there's a there's a quote that I had posted, uh, always do your worst case scenario analysis. Um, and uh, that has helped us be real. Because, I mean, like, sure, entrepreneurship is always about, okay, like most of the time you're kind of thinking a little too much into the future and that's where that fine line of what is real and what is hype gets faded away and it's very easy to lose credibility once you start to offer something which is not really true in, in the market so i think that's one thing that the team is uh, and across the board like everyone always tries to look at at, 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 at any project or any 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 of any kind of suggestions that are being made from a very pragmatic standpoint like is it, is it really real is it really an opportunity that we want to pursue and that also helps us say no to bespoke projects um, because this is not something that we want to do so do your worst case scenario analysis uh, has been has has stuck with us and i think now going forward uh, we'll also uh, uh, kind of apply it with stay crazy and like, like keep doing things because there are not too many companies that are doing what we're doing. So okay. and it, it, do you find it hard on the dev team? Like, do you find it hard to secure top talent? Because that, that's always the, the debate, right? Like there's always demand for computer engineers. They're often paid quite well, especially from the big tech firms like Google, Amazon, et cetera. So one, is it hard? And two, how do you, how do you look for a top talent that might not have the highest ego, let's say, right? Like, I guess in your community as well as, as many others, there's always that person who knows that they're that they're really sought after, they're really good. How do you convince mm -hmm. those top top players to come to CERN versus any other uh, startup that they could work for? Mm -hmm. Sure. So one thing we have realized, and I mean, uh, at least in in, in our capacity, uh, even if we we just cannot hire like really passionate, great talent. Um, just on the on 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 the new breaks and like on the total compensation package that 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 we are offering. Mm -hmm. uh, first, of course, like we will not be able to match if a big company really wants to compete, right? If Google wants to compete for for a candidate with us, we will not be able to match them like that. That we, and we know that. Um, and uh, so that we kind of um, understand as it's like a no brainer that like we are not going to compete on on the salaries. We still want to pay higher than the market, uh, whatever the market salaries are, so that you don't feel that you are being undervalued for what you are bringing uh, to the table, right? And yeah. I think that that's also not fair because we are able to afford um, hiring great talent at above market salaries. So, so we would definitely do that. Uh, second is always, we always try to see if the person is, and like that's kind of my litmus test. Uh, are you, are you dissatisfied with the state of things currently, right? I mean, if you're not, if you're comfortable with it, then getting out of that comfort zone will be very difficult because like the, those lines of what is work, what is life are going to get blurred. And, and I'm not saying that you'll be working over weekends, but there will be times that that will happen. And, uh, and I think 
yeah, like some tying them to the broader vision that there's really a problem that a lot of companies are are saying that they are solving, but they are not solving. And there's an actual there's a, there's actual great impact that you can make. And then that's this so that's like one of the things that tying them to the broader vision that has helped us. I mean, we have so far we have only had in five years on, on the technical side, we only had two people who left. One went for higher studies wow. and one went to become a freelancer and start his own company. And, uh, and everyone, yeah, every single person has, has stayed in the team. So that's like one thing that we do. And the second is we also take, uh, put effort to find for whichever team that the, that the candidate, candidate will be working with, what are the innovative aspects which is going to, put like bring passion and motivation uh, in, into that individual, right? So that's where you know, if you go on our website, we have tried to do innovation on every aspect. Like how do you manage data? How do you, how do you deploy infrastructure? How do you build models? Like every aspect of the company needs to have those, those small startup kind of mindsets and goals that, that the team would achieve. Yeah, so it keeps them obviously motivated. Things are always changing. It's not just, you know, it doesn't become like a corporate gig basically. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I would never, I would never try to create a culture where I would never want to work. In, right. So, like that's a, like we, we are all fundamentally. I think right now the team is fundamentally very unrecruitable, uh, like by any other co- big corporation. Okay. <laughs> I love that unrecruitable. That, that's kind of like the, uh, <laughs> the the compass to get to. But do you find it hard to stay as a like as a startup culture as you're growing? You know, you're you're raising larger rounds. You're hiring more people. The team is growing. Uh, you know, even if even if you look at like the large tech companies, like what Shopify used to be isn't what it is anymore. I'm assuming, right? I mean, you just can't anymore. Like when you're thousands of employees, you're going to have to have different systems. Um, do you find that? And if so, like, do you find it difficult to cope with it? Yeah, like I'm just curious what that feeling is like. So I think uh, definitely over time. We are working hard to bring some processes that will help our team also grow individually. Mm-hmm. Because I mean, we are growing as a company for sure, but there are also individual aspirations and 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 growth aspect. Like I mean, uh, someone wants to grow at go to certain place in 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 their in their journey, right? Um, they want to become eventually an entrepreneur on their own. I mean, we know that. I mean, all of these people they are so talented. They are all a startup within themselves. Like they, they pretty much take care of every aspect of their project. Um, so to, to uh, keep them also like to do justice to that to that talent, we are also trying to then bring in processes around. Okay, how 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 do you set also personal goals? Uh, can how, what can we help you with? Can we get you some additional courses, certifications, or or something that actually go beyond? your current job profile and and we do that all the time like we have people on the technology side who are taking some courses on finance because they want to understand what that world looks like uh kumesh and myself included we also do this uh to like keep uplift like keep betting getting becoming better leaders because uh, uh, you also need to grow so i think that those processes once they kick in uh of course some of There'll be some overlap with, with what a classic startup, super agile, break things, move fast culture looks like with what a very standard corporate culture looks like. I mean, we definitely do not want to be on the extremes of either of the spectrum. Uh, we 
if, if, if things break fast, then we will lose our contracts with, with, with companies. So, so we also no longer afford to break things very, very fast. So I think that is focusing on that individual growth we are looking at, and that is leading to lots of processes that are coming in. Like, how do we know that uh, now com- uh, uh, our, our team is satisfied and uh, are they liking the work? And that's why like we recently got into one of the top uh, companies to work for, like there was this uh, in New York City by, by Cranes, there was uh, mm. this employee, yeah, em- employee survey that nice. they conducted and, and we were one of the top companies to work for. Um, and those kind of things also help us get that pulse of the company, right? Like right. is something going wrong? What is going wrong? So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, it's, it's really nice to get that reinforced, especially when it's neutral, right? Like it's one thing to send an, an internal survey especially when you're a startup, it doesn't work as well as when you're a big corporate because when you're like 30 people and let's say 25 out of the 30 voted that things aren't going well, like you're going to take that a bit more personally, but you also are likely to know who they are, even if it's autonomous. Um, mm-hmm. So it, it's nice to get that external reinforcement, I think. Yeah. And um, I think like if you, like one thing we also establish is like the only way you can lose is if you are arrogant enough not to change. So if if we find something bad that's going on in the company, we have to just make changes and that's it. And then that's a, that's a very good uh, constructive criticism kind of a data point that we got. So we, we are not, not on the losing end at all. Like if all goes well, we are winning. If something is not going well, we make we change things and then we are winning. We're improving. Um, I, I got one more for you, Anshul, and I appreciate your time on this podcast. Um, and this is going to be a fun one. So mm-hmm. I, I hope, but th- I, I'm just curious. Being an AI, being as a CTO, as a technical co-founder, where your head is at on the debate of where AI is going, right? Because you have these major leaders. Elon is, is on one spectrum. You're not really mm-hmm. loving the speed at which AI is, is taking place. And you have others on the other spectrum that actually condone it. So I'm curious mm-hmm. what your thoughts are knowing these these two sides of the coin and which one, mm-hmm. one you're leading more to. Sure. Um, so I think... Um, Statistically speaking, and I, I, I'm, I'm using that phrase very, very, very carefully. Uh, and uh, so I think it, what Elon Musk, like the, the, the angle that he's taking on the spectrum, of course, it seems very dystopian that oh, things are, may, may go towards a, 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 like a gloomy f- a future, um, but it's actually not very far from reality. If you just look at the, there was this model that his team created at OpenAI, um, GPT-3. Mm-hmm. The kind of uh, the kind of uh, debate that GPT-3 has 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 created, and uh, if you look at some of the models that people built using GPT-3, it's almost unreal. Like six months ago, no one would have even imagined in their wildest dreams that we will have models that would converse so well on Reddit that people will be unable to identify if it's a bot or, or a human. So I think uh, like it really grows very exponentially once you start to hit that point of, of, uh, of, of a near perfect AI for a, for a use case. Now, of course, the, the point which we'll have to be cautious about is the broader umbrella of general purpose AI. Uh, I still believe that general purpose AI, which just knows everything and anything about, about every topic, uh, I think that's... It's, into the future. Uh, I, I believe we will still see this transition 
of no AI to vertically focused AI, what Accern is currently, right? We are very focused towards the vertical, towards the use case, and we perform better than a, a, an open source horizontal AI. And then we'll probably see in the next couple of decades, like maybe bigger AI companies that will have multiple models that are vertically focused, and then they combining together to create as general purpose intelligence. But I, I'm, I'm definitely on the side of Elon Musk on this. You would not bet against that person. <laughs> so. Yeah, so, so better to, to kind of proceed with a little bit of caution. He, he, I remember he had this like one metaphor of, of saying like when seed, the, the innovation of seatbelts, you know, when, when, they, when they came out years ago, uh, mm-hmm. and I think you know this, like it took 10 years for people to regulate it. You know, yep. and it, something as clear as like wearing a seatbelt and people knowing the consequences, and it still yep. took them so long. So I think his argument is just to have a bit more of a thoughtful process as to how we re- release AI at this pace and, and just some regulation yep. around it. Yep, yep, absolutely. And I think you, uh, so I was like just in the GPT-3 example. Uh, and uh, if you look at some of the models that have been, like right now, this whole ML interpretability, trustworthiness of the of the models, it's, it's a big debate. And honestly, not even the more, the approaches that companies use to try to understand understand the models, they're not perfect. They, they, they only give you a very, very small view of what the model is trying to do. And uh, that's where our angle at Axern is give some skin in the game to the end users, right? Like we want to let them personalize and customize with their own feedback so that it's much closer to their mental model of mm-hmm. things than telling them that, oh, this is the, it's a model that just knows it all. Um, so I think but I, I totally agree with that. I mean, it, it has to be regulated in some in some aspects, and uh, and at least there has to be a framework. Once we understand what the models are doing, there has to be a framework around what the models should not be doing. If you found this podcast useful, make sure to share it out with your community. And if you haven't already done so, subscribe to the podcast. I'll see you next time.